Good morning, Agent. This is Gil Garcia from Post Credits. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join me as we dive into Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. This message will self-destruct in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, folks, and welcome to the first review for Post Credits with Gil Garcia. I am the titular host, Gil, and I am here, and I'm excited to bring you my review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the seventh and penultimate film in the Mission Impossible franchise. I am so excited to get into this, guys. It is... um, been a long time dream to do a podcast again where i get to talk to you guys about these movies and what better way to start it than with mission impossible a franchise that i have a long history with that i absolutely adore and love and i just want to gush about the entire time of this podcast so for anyone that's listening that didn't listen to last week's episode where i kind of introduced the format of the podcast the way today's episode is going to be broken down is going to be into four segments we're going to start with act one which will be the synopsis of the film and my personal connection to the franchise act two will be when i'll get into the spoiler free review of the film let you know what i thought of it and especially for those of you who haven't seen the film yet Act 2 will be where you'll get most of your information. I'm going to stay spoiler-free so that you can enjoy the episode and then go watch the film. And then come back, because post-credits, I'll be talking about spoilers. And then Act 3, which will come right after my review, will be talking about all the public reception, the budget, the critical reception, um, how well the movie did at the box office this weekend. And then I'm also going to give you some filmmaking factoids to gush about Um for the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 film. And I think it's about time, guys. Let's get right into it. This is Act 1. Alright, guys. So, as I mentioned before, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is the seventh and penultimate film in the Mission Impossible franchise. It stars Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. When he finds himself embroiled in a high-stakes mission, he races against time to prevent a global catastrophe. The film also stars Haley Atwell as Grace, Ving Rhames as Luther, Simon Pegg as Benji, Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust, Vanessa Kirby as the White Widow, Asai Morales as Gabriel, and Pom Clementiev as Paris. I want to talk about this film dating all the way back to my roots and what made me love filmmaking to begin with. I remember when I was like about 12 years old, and keep in mind, this is in the 90s, I was really heavily into WWF, you know, the World Wrestling Federation. At the time in the 90s, the most popular wrestlers were Stone Cold Steve Austin, Brett the Hitman Hart, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, um, and the hot musical artists at the time were like Link- Limp Biscuit, Linkin Park, um, Evanescence, so on and so forth. Now, during this time, Limp Biscuit played a critical role into my appreciation of Mission Impossible because Limp Biscuit was doing the, I think, the soundtrack and the official theme song of WrestleMania in the 90s. 
and they were playing that one song my way or the highway or whatever but they were also promoting their connection to the mission impossible franchise which is they performed a cover of the original mission impossible theme with a song called take a look around now in the 90s i was a little kid i watched every commercial every ad that the wf wwf threw at me i'm talking like mcdonald's commercials um burger king hot wheels you name it and during this time the wwf also liked to promote like soundtracks with cd players being the hot commodity at the time they would show like breaking benjamin commercials they would show lincoln park commercials evanescence and of course limbiscuit because limbiscuit was doing the wrestlemania theme song and when i first heard limbiscuit's rendition of the mission impossible theme i was like holy crap this is awesome so i went to my dad and i told him hey dad i want the mission impossible 2 soundtrack for my birthday so sure enough my birthday comes my dad buys me the soundtrack and I played the shit out of that soundtrack. There were some bangers on there, too. I'm talking like they had Limp Bizkit, Metallica, Incubus, Tool. They had a really good crew, uh, group of uh, artists on there. And uh, when I began to play it on my CD player, my dad asked me, like, have you ever seen this movie? I'm like, nah, I just like the music. And he's like, well, let me... Let me show it to you. So we go to Blockbuster, we rent Mission Impossible 2, and I get to watch it for the first time. And I was blown away. Keep in mind, I was 12 years old. I didn't know what a bad movie was back then. But I loved it because there was like slow motion gunplay. You had Tom Cruise with his like... And this was prime Tom Cruise with like the long slick back hair. He was super cool with the sunglasses. Um, You also had like... John Woo was the director, so there were doves flying all over the place. There was a motorcycle chase, and I really dug it. It was of its time. So unless you were there or you were born in the 90s to watch this movie, you probably look at it as a piece of shit nowadays. But when I was a kid, I saw that movie, and I was just like enamored by it. I love the soundtrack, and I love the movie. And sure enough, my dad ended up buying the movie on, on DVD and uh, gave it to me as well. Um, I actually might still have the soundtrack here in my room. If I do, I'm definitely posting a picture of it on Instagram after this, uh, podcast goes up, but that was my introduction into mission impossible. I was never really, a a Pierce Brosnan 007 kind of kid. I really liked action films, but mission impossible was more my style. It was more simple, easier to follow. Um, big action set pieces with Tom Cruise. Whereas in the nineties, the action with uh, James Bond wasn't as good. In my opinion, I really did like, you know, the John Woo style of mission impossible too. But with that being said, when mission impossible three came around and JJ Abrams was set to direct it, obviously I was older. I could comprehend it a little bit better and I really dug it too. Mission Impossible 3 does not get enough credit, but it may stand as J.J. Abrams' best film, in my opinion, only because it brought the conversation back to Mission Impossible that wasn't happening for a long time. People saw John Woo's film, and they discredited the whole film. They were like, you know, this is kind of a piece of crap. 
Maybe Face Off was like a once in a lifetime hit for for John Woo, but Mission Impossible 2 wasn't it. Mission Impossible 3 comes and they add Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames returns, but they also add Michelle Monaghan. And for the villain, they got Philip fucking Seymour Hoffman. And that blew my mind because Seymour Hoffman is like one of these prestigious Academy Award nominated every single time he touches a film type of actors. But for him to play the villain in a Mission Impossible movie, that was big. And this movie had some really crazy stunts. You had, you know, Tom Cruise leaping onto the top of a building and sliding down. Um, You had that crazy race through... um, I can't remember the city. It might have been Shanghai, where Ethan Hunt has the bomb in his head. And it was just fantastic. It was heart pumping. And at a certain point, you even thought Ethan Hunt was going to die. But it worked out perfectly. The franchise continues going on. And then they drop the fucking hammer. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol comes out. And at this time, 007 has taken over. Everyone is talking about Casino Royale and talking about James Bond once again as the king of spy movies. Then Ghost Protocol comes out and completely knocks James Bond on its ass, especially after Quantum of Solace. Ghost Protocol literally redefined the Mission Impossible franchise, possibly saving it. Tom Cruise is a madman in this Ghost Protocol shows him, you know, hanging off the side of the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world, doing a stunt for a movie that he doesn't even know is going to be a guaranteed hit, along with, you know, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg. I mean, hell, they even had Jeremy Renner show up in this film on the off chance that it wasn't a hit. Maybe they could segue onto Jeremy Renner's hot streak and maybe make him the potential Mission Impossible lead going forward. But no, no, no. Tom Cruise does that Burj Khalifa stunt, and he stays on and tells everyone, I'm Ethan Hunt, I'm here to fucking stay, and Ghost Protocol is my best film. And Ghost Protocol brings the franchise back dramatically. Now, of course, you have great performance standouts from like Paula Patton, Michael Nyquist, formerly of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is also in that movie, but what really stood out were the set pieces in Ghost Protocol. Everyone t- also talks about the scene with the um, with like the layer of film that like kind of projects a hologram of the hallway. Such a cool spy like gadget. It seems really practical, but also very like new age thinking. Uh, Ghost Protocol was also directed by Brad Bird, by the way, who uh, did The Incredibles. So fun factoid there. Then we go to Rogue Nation. Now, Rogue Nation was kind of a step back for me. I liked it a lot, but it didn't do it for me the way that Ghost Protocol did, where Ghost Protocol really kind of stood on its own and it made itself like well-known as like the almost reboot of the Mission Impossible franchise. Rogue Nation is a follow-up where... Ethan Hunt is now chasing this uh, syndicate that's now uh, taking over the world. And he's joined by, and this is my favorite addition to the franchise so far, Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, Rebecca Ferguson. I love her so much, man. She absolutely crushes it in this movie as Ilsa Faust, a femme fatale that goes toe-to-toe with Ethan at 
every single level. Um, Tom Cruise even did a crazy stunt in this movie where he hangs off the side of an airplane. And um, I think Rogue Nation is a really good time. Not my favorite, but definitely one of the best that they've done. All right. And then comes Mission Impossible Fallout, which in my opinion is the second best film in the franchise. I loved Fallout so much. They added Henry Cavill as the villain. For the first time in the franchise, Tom Cruise has someone to go hand-to-hand combat up against who is more imposing, almost as popular as him. And of course, this movie also sparked the mustache gate debacle with Warner Brothers and the Justice League. But we won't go on that for now. Uh, Sean Harris returns to Solomon Lane that controlled the syndicate. You got Rebecca Ferguson back. And then they finally close Ethan Hunt's storyline with Michelle Monaghan, Julia in uh, Mission Impossible 3. And it's a very nice package, tidied up ending for that story. Fallout, in my opinion, had some of the best action set pieces. There's a skydiving stunt where they're above France. And it ends with a very heartfelt uh, connection between Ethan Hunt and Ilsa Faust. So that's my breakdown in my history to the franchise, why I love Mission Impossible and why I think Mission Impossible is the most underrated movie franchise going today. And it sadly gets overshadowed by James Bond a little bit too often. But if you haven't watched any of these films, I implore you to go ahead and watch them, even Mission Impossible 2. Um, If I were to rate them, I would go Ghost Protocol as the best. Fallout as the second best, Rogue Nation third, and then Mission Impossible 3, Mission Impossible 1, and then Mission Impossible 2. So that brings us to the end of Act 1, and we're going to head into my review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. All right, guys, so this is what you came for. This is the spoiler-free review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. First and foremost, I want to say that this movie probably falls as my third favorite film in the franchise. I do not think it's better than Fallout. I do not think it's better than Ghost Protocol. I will say it's definitely better than Rogue Nation. Some of the stuff they do in this movie when it comes to AI and modern filmmaking is astounding, and it's fantastic. This movie, like every other Mission Impossible movie up until this point, will keep you to the edge of your seats. It will keep you engaged. And there won't be a minute of this screen time that is wasted here. This is a very tightly packed two and a half hour runtime film that will keep you guessing the whole way through. It ends in a way that's um, very satisfying for being a part one as compared to other part one movies. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Tom Cruise here shows why he's here to save cinemas. I love the movie going experience and what Tom Cruise did last year with Top Gun Maverick and especially what he's doing here with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. I have to applaud him. Say what you will about his personal life and his antics and the way he goes about carrying himself on a set. I think Mission I think Tom Cruise is one of the last true movie stars and he is doing everything in his power he's giving 
every ounce of himself to make sure he puts asses in the seats of these movie theaters. And as someone who loves the movie going experience and will forever be a patron of the theaters, I respect Tom Cruise so much for that. And Dead Reckoning Part 1 is another achievement in his illustrious career, another notch on the hat. And what could I say about him that hasn't been said already? He is fantastic in this movie. Um, The movie also introduces three characters that have never appeared in the Mission Impossible franchise before. Haley Atwell's Grace, Palm Clementief's um, character known as Paris, and Asai Morales as the villain who's playing this character known as Gabriel. I think all three actors did a fantastic job here. Haley Atwell, for me, is the clear standout. She gets the most screen time and the most dialogue in the film. She plays counter to Tom Cruise's um, agent antics. Um, Haley Atwell holds her own. And, you know, for the longest time, we always thought, you know, how is Haley Atwell going to define herself after doing a Marvel movie? We've seen so many actors and actresses who had done the MCU and then they just fluster out into nothingness afterwards. Palm Clementief, another MCU veteran, comes into the franchise as a villain. Um, you know, we know her as Mantis, this naive, simple, like very happy-go-lucky character in the MCU. But here, she's almost the exact opposite. She's doing her best impression of what we think is like a John Wick villain. Her facial expressions are fantastic because she doesn't have a lot to say here. She is a very silent character. I mean, even at one point, she dresses like a mime, but (laughs) I think her physical presence here is fantastic. There's a scene in the middle of the movie where she has a sword fight with Tom Cruise. Fantastic. She holds her own, and it's good to see her in this franchise. And now let's talk about S.I. Morales. Now, this is a character that's being retconned into the story as a person from Ethan Hunt's past, but we had never seen this character on screen before, even before the very first Mission Impossible. So that's already comes with a lot of uh, caveats, especially with the previous part one film that we saw this summer, Fast X, who tried to do the same thing with Jason Momoa's character. Here, I think Asai Morales works better. It's not like this character has been controlling every single event that has led to this, but he has been slowly plotting since uh, the very first start of Ethan Hunt's agent career to get revenge in this uh, um, aspect. And Asai Morales' motives are pretty brutal, man. He is working with an AI named The Entity, which can calculate and predict future events, which ultimately creates one of the coolest like sword fights I've, I've seen in a movie. And I think Asai Morales, he may be a bit cold. He may be not as personable as Henry Cavill, but I think he does a good job here of making himself stand out from other Mission Impossible villains or movie villains that kind of just fall by the wayside. This is Christopher McQuarrie's uh, third Mission Impossible film, and I think it's very strong here. He clearly has chemistry with Tom Cruise dating back to their work with Jack Reacher. His action set pieces are full of spectacle. They are a sight to behold. And a lot of them are done practically. I watched a behind the scenes shot of how he directed that motorcycle motorcycle stunt 
at the end of the film with Tom Cruise being on the motorcycle himself, they had to record the scene from a helicopter about 200 feet away from Tom Cruise, but they couldn't get too close to him. Otherwise, the wind from the propellers would blow Tom Cruise off the ramp that they built. And not only that, even if he like ejected his parachute, he would be far too close to the edge of that cliff for it to really save his life and to take effect. So they had to be very careful with the way they shot this film. And I got to say, I absolutely adore the lengths that they went to keep everything practical and to keep everything in-house. There are some sequences that are CGI, and we'll talk about that in spoilers, but they didn't bother me as much because the practical stunts that are here are absolutely incredible. I mentioned before that there are other Part 1 films that came out this year. We had Fast X and then Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Fast X is really kind of a blight to me because those movies don't establish stakes. Every character in those franchises is superhuman. They don't die. They always come back. They make humor out of it. And the movies don't feel fun for that. In order for a movie to feel fun and engaging and immersive, you have to establish stakes. And I am so glad to see that this movie, Part 1 Dead Reckoning, does establish stakes. There are characters that will die here. There are characters that will be in peril. The power dynamic of the IMF changes by the end of the film. It is fantastic. And I think that what they're setting up for part two here is going to be spectacular. Unlike the Fast X franchise that we don't even know what the next movie is going to look like. What, is the, what the fuck is, is it even going to be about? But with this, they're setting up very specific plot points while also paying off some other storylines and finishing and closing out other people's stories. I like what they did here. Unlike, and this is one of the biggest gripes with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. People watched that film and thought, there are too many loose ends here. It doesn't feel like a complete movie. Yes, you want more from Across the Spider-Verse or Beyond the Spider-Verse next time. But this movie doesn't feel gratifying in that sense. It just leaves everything kind of out in the open. Dead Reckoning Part 1, the closure of a lot of these storylines does make the prospect of seeing Dead Reckoning Part 2 much more exciting to me. And it also makes Part 1 a better film because of it. Now, I've been thinking about this for a very long time. Am I going to do a scale or a score on this show. And I thought, you know what? Let's do it. One one out of five, with five being the best. But what is the metric that I'm going to be using for this uh, podcast? Well, for the first episode, I'm going to say mozzarella sticks is going to be my metric. Now, anyone who's gone to see a movie with me knows there are two things I buy at the concession stand every time I see a movie. One is a drink. The second is mozzarella sticks. And I don't think this is going to be permanent. I'm going to listen to you guys' feedback and see what we can do, what metric we're going to use from here on out. But today's episode, we're going to be reviewing Dead Reckoning Part 1 on a scale of 1 to 5 mozzie sticks. And I am happy to report that Dead Reckoning Part 1 
receives a four out of five mozzie sticks. So I think it's a great time at the movie theaters. I think you guys will really enjoy it as well. And I cannot wait for Dead Reckoning Part 2. It's not the best Mission Impossible film, but it's a sure damn good one. And that will bring us to Act 3. Now, Act 3, I'm going to go into the critical reception, the audience reception, the budget, the box office results, and some filmmaking factoids. So I'm going to rattle these off for you. So, currently, as it stands on Rotten Tomatoes, Dead Reckoning Part 1 has a 96 certified fresh rating on the critical side of the website, meaning that audiences and critics love it. It's a surefire hit. One of the best films of the summer. And on the audience side, it's scoring at an equally high 94% on the Rotten Tomatoes scale for the audience. So I think that that is a surefire sign that if you have not seen a movie this summer, make this one the one to go watch. Because it is amazing to watch in IMAX, awesome to watch in Dolby, and you're going to get your bang for your buck here. With that being said, let's talk about the budget. Believe it or not, this film started in 2020. But due to massive delays caused by the COVID-19 virus, the budget ballooned from about 180, 190 million to almost 290 million, almost doubling the budget, all because of reshoots, scheduling conflicts, and uh, other unforeseen circumstances that caused them to change film like filming locations and sites it makes it the most expensive mission impossible film to date and it is absolutely 100 is the most expensive film to make in tom cruise's career there's a lot of discourse going on about these box office bombs that have been happening uh this year including the flash and indiana jones and how these studios are spending so much money to make these films. The COVID-19 virus certainly was a kick in the ass for a lot of the studios, and having to reshoot an entire film, not just months later, but years later after the pandemic, it did hurt a lot of people's wallets. And Tom Cruise was on the record of saying he had to actually yell at some of the crew members who were making this film to put on their masks and to stay safe and to socially distance with one another. That's why we're seeing seeing a lot more CGI in movies and a lot more green screen usage because these studios weren't able to film remotely at the actual shot locations that they planned to because of travel restrictions with COVID-19. You'll see some shots in here that look like they're in a green screen and it's because of that that issue, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But with that being said, $290 million budget, how did it do this weekend at the box office? Well, this weekend, it brought in $280 million at the domestic box office, which means that the movie almost made back its entire budget in just one weekend. But that comes with a caveat. It is the largest opening for the Mission Impossible franchise ever. The most money it's made in a single box office weekend. But that's also helped with the fact that they opened a couple days sooner. It is more like a five-day opening window as opposed to a three-day weekend. And 
that is not the amount of money that they were expecting to get back for the studio for this film. I think the projections from the industry experts was that this movie was going to make close to $350 million this opening weekend. $280 million is a significant letdown for Paramount, especially because the budget for the film ballooned so high. I think that's a testament to streaming. A lot of people still aren't going back to the movie theaters after the pandemic changed the way people approach blockbuster movies. My showing on Tuesday, for example, was actually pretty full. There were people on my right and left, and it was filled from the top all the way to the um, handicap seating in the front. Now, does this movie have legs? I think good word of mouth will give this movie enough of a reach to last all the way past, you know, August. And then when it goes on VOD, that's when the profit is really going to reach its point. I'm definitely buying this movie on Blu-ray and uh, DVD. The box office results are a testament to everyone's new age thinking about cinema. And despite Tom Cruise's best efforts to bring people back into the theater, Mission Impossible did not bring people back the way that Top Gun Maverick did, I'm afraid to announce. Another big factoid about this film, Tom Cruise is now older than John Voight was when he was in the first Mission Impossible movie. Tom Cruise is 61. (laughs) John Voight was 59 when Mission Impossible 1 came out. That's insane, right? Like, like, just think about that. You look at side-by-side pictures of John Voight and Tom Cruise. John Voight at 57, Tom Cruise at 61. Tom Cruise still looks younger than John Voight. It's, it's wild to me. Just shows the, the power of Scientology and keto diets will, be, will do for a person. Another factoid. Now, Henry Zerny returns as Eugene Kittredge. He was in the very first Mission Impossible movie as an IMF agent. And he finally comes back after so many years of being absent. It makes him the the longest absent character to come back in the movie franchise, which is pretty nuts. I'm hoping that we may see Emilio Estevez eventually, but <laughs> let's just say he's probably still stuck to the top of a elevator shaft, if you got my meaning. <laughs> also of note, Asai Morales, we talked about him as the villain in this movie. I bet you didn't know, but Asai Morales wasn't originally signed on to be the villain in Dead Reckoning. It was originally going to be Nicholas Holt from The Menu and X-Men First Class. He was originally going to be playing the Gabriel character, but had to back out due to scheduling conflicts. And unfortunately, had to drop out of the project. Pretty crazy to think about how different this movie would have been if Nicholas Holt was in that role. I haven't seen him per se in a very villainous role, but there's a lot of screen to chew on here that maybe he could have made work to his advantage, but we'll never see that movie. And I think Asai Morales actually did a a very good job here. And I can't wait to see him return for Dead Reckoning Part 2. So that is it for my filmmaking factoids. This episode is going by pretty quick in my mind. It's already been uh, only 30 minutes, but I hope you enjoyed it. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, the format is going to go like this. I'm going to tease next week's episode right now, and then I'm going to play the outro music. If you have not seen Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the outro music is your cue to pause the podcast. Go watch the film, because when the intro music or the outro music finishes, 
I'm going to be giving a full spoiler alert. And we're going to go into our post-credits discussion full of spoilers about everything in Dead Reckoning Part 1. So, with that being said, next week's episode, I promise you, it won't be made of plastic, but it will be fantastic. And that is all I'll give you for now. So until next week, everyone, this was Post Credits and go see more movies. This is a spoiler warning. This is a spoiler warning. All right, guys, welcome back. This is our post-credits discussion of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So if you've already watched the film, you are safe. We're going to go into specific spoilers that occurred in this movie. If you have not watched it, you will be spoiled. And I do not take responsibility for your enjoyment of the film if I ruined it for you. So with that being said, let's get started. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is the final film with Rebecca Ferguson. It breaks my heart. But Ilsa Faust gets sadly killed at the in the second act of this movie. Ilsa Faust was a fantastic addition to the film. I loved every minute that she was on screen. She was a dynamic femme fatale and an amazing romantic interest for uh, Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt here. But it is a very solemn goodbye for a character that has only had three movies, but all three movies she's been a standout in. Does that lead way into Haley Atwell becoming a new romantic interest? I don't know in that sense, but I do say that Haley Atwell will be a very good contributor for the final movie. But to say goodbye to Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa Faust character really set the tone for this movie. The sequence leading up to her death, it's so brilliantly done. We've had a lot of discussions about AI and technology and even nowadays We're talking about SAG-AFTRA strike is going on and they are fighting to keep their jobs amongst AI writers and filmmakers. This movie has a very brilliant but brutal scene where Ethan Hunt and Ilsa Faust get separated after a nightclub. Ilsa Faust goes right after Gabriel, who's going after Grace. So Tom Cruise is left behind in the club and he's gathering the two key pieces and is fighting off the White Widow's henchmen so that he can also go and try and save Grace. Because at this point, Gabriel's given them an ultimatum. One person is going to die today. It's either going to be Grace or it's going to be Ilsa Faust. When he begins pursuing the parties, he is getting fed directions by Benji over his mic. And this is where the AI takes over. The entity duplicates Simon Pegg's voice and relays 
incorrect directions to Ethan Hunt, which then leads him to a booby-trapped ambush with Palm Clementief. So you have a chase scene that then becomes split into two simultaneous fight scenes with our characters literally at the brink of death. It is heart-pumping. It is awesome. But at the same time, it's very scary the way it's done. The AI voice is... God, it's just terrifying. But once Ethan Hunt finally breaks free, he finally uh, disposes of Palm Clementief's character and gets free to to go and save uh, Grace and Ilsa Faust, he arrives there too late. Ilsa Faust has been stabbed to death by Gabriel and has been left on the bridge in the middle of Venice. What I appreciate about this also is that it's not one of those cliche death scenes where the dying hero has to say something gallant to uh, their predecessor or to their loved one. No, by the time uh, Ethan Hunt gets to her, she's gone. She's been gone for a while, and uh, there's nothing he could do to save her. Ilsa Faust, rest in peace, girl. You played your part really well, and I loved Rebecca Ferguson in this role. And um, I'm going to miss her. I'm honestly going to miss her a lot. Now... Talking about her death, we also got to talk about the villains, and I mentioned the entity. Now, we're talking about Gabriel. Gabriel, as compared to the other antagonists of the Mission Impossible franchise, I think is a standout here. Although Henry Cavill will still be my top favorite villain in the franchise, Gabriel does a good job here. He uses the entity in a very smart way where it's almost like he gets precognitive control over what might happen in the future. And he's counteracting that, so it's like he... Ethan Hunt is playing a game of chess that was already plotted out for him the entire time. They already know what he's going to do, and Gabriel is just the conduit to which causes all this action to happen. He is not necessarily imposing physically, but he is a psychological and emotional threat to Ethan Hunt. And for that, I think he stands out a bit more than Sean Harris uh, Michael Nyquist, and uh, even Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think Gabriel is uh, a little bit more intimidating than Philip Seymour Hoffman, given the context of the film. One thing I didn't like about the film is the intro. I think it starts off setting up the stakes and showing you what we're fighting for, but it doesn't actually tell you what was inside that submarine. It's just a kind of lousy and lame MacGuffin that... um Eventually, I think it will get paid off in the next uh, movie, but still, it stands out as a huge MacGuffin with characters that we didn't really care about. There were all these Russian like submarine divers, and it had to do with like the radar disguising uh, a fake submarine, and they end up shooting themselves and blowing themselves up. It's cool, but it doesn't actually grab people's attention like other Mission Impossible films. There was no real mask-revealing hook of an intro so i think it starts off a little soft but the action sequences that are here are fantastic um we then go to paris where there is an airport sequence where grace and ethan hunt first meet they do a bunch of magic tricks involving the two MacGuffin keys and i really like the chemistry between Haley and tom here they do play off each other both comedically and compassionately and there is a very adversarial uh, dynamic there. Very, very good. Very well done. And it then gets elevated when the two get handcuffed to one another. 
and then have to escape not only the police, but they also have to escape the entity's henchmen, followed by Gabriel and Palm Clementief. So they're driving through Paris, and they get into a yellow Fiat, which is souped up, hard to drive. And dude, I never even thought about the whole right side, left side driving mechanic. But because the two of them are handcuffed together, it is brilliant when they have to decide which person is going to drive and which one can't. They get into a accident where they flip over, they switch seats, and then more chaos and comedy ensues. It is awesome. (laughs) And it's funny because it's the second time this year that I said it was France, but it's actually Italy. It's the second time that Italy was featured in a car chase scene this year. The first was with Fast X and their whole Rocket League segment. Here, I think it's done way better. It's way more comedic. It's way more action-paced. It's funnier. It's uh, it's way more exciting. Less CGI. It's almost all practical. It's awesome to see. It really set the tone for for the movie and what was to come in the third act. In the third act, after Ilsa Faust has been killed, and we've already talked enough about the AI chase scene that was involved there, now we come to the train sequence. This is a big pivotal point for me because this is what made it going from 10 out of 10, the best movie in the franchise, to I really liked it. It's probably my third favorite. The train sequence is phenomenal. I am not denying that. But as a video game player and as a fan of the Uncharted franchise, I cannot help but feel the similarities between Uncharted 2 and Dead Reckoning's train sequence. There are actually some shots here that are taken right out of the video game. And I'm like, wait a minute. I felt like I've seen this before. doesn't make it any less exciting because we're seeing actual train cars get blown up but it does kind of take away from the originality and the ingenuity that i was kind of experiencing with the movie up until this point what i did like about the train sequence is the switcheroo with vanessa kirby and uh hayley atwell you have vanessa kirby acting as hayley atwell who is acting as vanessa kirby during a negotiation scene in the train cars It's pretty awesome to watch because you can tell the difference between when Vanessa Kirby is playing her White Widow character. She's very charismatic. She's very strong-willed. She's seductive. She has this air about her where she's like almost cocky and overconfident. But then when she plays herself as Grace, who's wearing a mask of her, she's very squirrely and unsure of everything. She's not as demanding. She does aspects where she's trying to be like what the white widow would be but she's not quite there there's no confidence it's very funny it's well played and i think vanessa kirby is fantastic in this movie because of that scene Um, otherwise she would have been kind of lost in the shuffle here there's a lot going on with this movie and vanessa kirby who in my opinion was really great in mission impossible fallout would have otherwise just been a forgettable additional character here but the train sequence of her acting as Haley Atwell acting as her is awesome. It's it's really funny. It's really well played. And I have to highlight it because it's awesome. It's almost like she transforms into a character within a character. So that brings the question. Now that Ethan Hunt has both keys at the end of the film, he doesn't kill Gabriel because as the prediction saw, if Gabriel were to die on that train, then the AI would win. Ethan Hunt spares him. 
but he still manages to siphon off the two key pieces, bring them together, and now he has the keys. Pom Clementiev has a prophetic moment at the end of the movie where she saves both Grace and Ethan Hunt, and she kind of turns her character. She doesn't die, per se, given the context of the dialogue at the end, but she does say that she's going to betray Gabriel, and this is kind of the start. I think Pom Clementiev's character was pretty nice in the sense that she was just this unleashed kind of wildebeest going after these guys, but now she's had a full character arc within a film, which is exactly what I said earlier in my non-spoiler part. I said that this movie does have concluding storylines that set up things in part two that are going to be gratifying, and this is one of them. Paris, Pom Clementiev's character, does go through a character arc, and by the end, you actually really like her and what she did. I think when she gets rested up, when she gets healed up at the start of part two, she's going to play a pivotal role in how Ethan is going to find the submarine and what exactly is the purpose of the keys in the submarine. I did get a couple questions on Instagram that I'm going to address. I'm probably going to have a certain segment for it sometime in, uh, I think, Act 3 going on for my future podcast. I'm going to have a segment made directly for uh, audience questions and stuff of that nature. But I'm going to fit it in here because it does fit into what we're talking about. Greg Magdaleno, friend of the show, buddy of mine that we went to college with, asks, How much crazier are the stunts going to get in Part 2? With the strike going on much longer, how much longer are we going to have to wait until we see it? And he doesn't mind waiting because he supports the strike 100%. Fantastic question, Greg. Um, So, you're right. This strike is going to impact the filmmaking of Part 2. I think majority of it has already been shot. But almost everyone unanimously, and actors, writers, producers, all agree that what is happening with the studio heads in these movie studios is a damn crime. And we're probably going to have to wait like maybe two years for this movie to come out. I think it was on slate for 2024, but realistically, we're like we're likely looking at 2025. As for the stunts, I definitely see an underwater sequence here. Uh, they have to go underwater for that submarine. So there's probably going to be a sequence of Tom Cruise scuba diving down into the depths of the ocean to retrieve this sub. So that can get pretty nuts. I honestly don't know, man. Like Tom Cruise is a madman. He could do anything in this next movie and I will be absolutely surprised by it. Who knows? Maybe he'll do a stunt where he'll shoot himself into space. We don't know, but it's fun to imagine that. Either way, I think part two is going to be the perfect summer blockbuster. It's going to bring back so many callbacks to the original films and pay off this character and send him off in a way that's very true to Ethan Hunt. I just want to see a better finale out of Mission Impossible than I did with No Time to Die with 007. I hate to say it, but No Time to Die was kind of a stinker in my opinion. I did not like that movie as much as I thought I was going to. I see Christopher McQuarrie and Paramount sticking the landing here. I think Dead Reckoning Part 2 is going to be a fantastic finale, and there's almost no way they're going to botch this in my opinion. But we'll see. We do support the writers of the SAG after strike. So uh, stay true, stay strong, guys. AI will not replace your jobs. I will definitely support anyone in that fight. All right. So that's going to do it for me today, guys. I think 50 minutes is a good 
podcast length for you. I went through everything pretty quickly, but I also think I made my point across. If you guys have any questions or comments, you can feel free to message me on Twitter. My handle is at G-I-L-X-8-7, GilX87. My Instagram handle is Gilly087. And of course, you can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank you again for listening and taking the time to hear me out on this very first review. I hope you guys liked it. As always, watch more movies.